They're complementary. You know, if you've got a small molecule or peptide that works on your target, go for it. It's a lot simpler to manufacture and produce a tracer. But if there is no such small molecule or peptide, you know, um, then antibodies become a very, very powerful approach to getting a highly affinity, high specificity recognition agent for, for whatever target you're interested in. Welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Wider, and together with me in the studio, I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome, Annette. Thank you so much, Gustav. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? Great. Looking forward to this uh, talk very soon. Anna Vu. Anna Vu, she's a total expert in the field of immune pet and radioimmunotherapies. What do you think about today's uh, episode? Yeah, it's going to be challenging for us, I think. It's a new, it's a very focused and promising field for the future. Yes. And yeah. important to try to gather as much information as possible today. Yeah. So I think we uh, just go for the presentation. We do. Take it away. Dr. Anna Wu is professor at City of Hope and Research at UCLA, California. Her research focuses on applications of antibodies for diagnostics and therapy of cancer, utilizing engineered antibodies for targeted radionuclide delivery. Anna Wu has more than 350 published articles and is well cited. In 2007, she and colleagues at UCLA faculty founded Imaginab, a biotechnology company specializing in the development of engineered antibody fragments for diagnostic imaging and novel therapeutic applications. And according to Anna, a revolution of precision health is coming. It's just around the corner. Welcome, Anna Wu. You are in Los Angeles, California. What is it like there today? Uh, you know, it's actually typical May weather. Everybody thinks it's sunny all the time, but, you know, at this time of the year, we get morning coastal fog and clouds, and then in the afternoon, it clears out, and it'll be nice and sunny. So, haven't seen rain in a long time, unfortunately. <laughs> it's very dry this year, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very pleasant. Hmm. What's your plan for today? Oh, oh actually, um, after we do this uh, chat with you guys, um, I'm actually participating in a uh, conference, a local conference on entrepreneurship in the Los Angeles area. So it features the four major universities and research institutions, UCLA, USC, Caltech, City of Hope, um, as well as um, existing small companies and potential investors and, and leaders in, in Southern California. So um, actually, it's been fun to listen. This is day three. And, uh, you know, one usually doesn't think of Los Angeles necessarily as a biotech hub, but it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. There's a lot going on. So it's mm. been very, uh, a lot of fun to just sort of catch up with what's going on in the area. And what do you think it's going on in the area from day three now? Um, what is, what's on? Well, just sort of generally what's happening is that, you know, we have a lot of intellectual talent. You know, we've got some really great universities, great talent. And there's a small history of, of, of actually, you know, significant biotechnology. Amgen is here, Agensis, 
uh, which then turned into, was purchased by Astellis. We have Kite Pharmaceuticals and CAR T cells. Um, so uh, there's, there's actually, you know, a already, you know, a history of biotech in uh, Los Angeles, but there are also a lot of startup companies, including my own, which is not so young. Maybe it's not a startup company anymore. It's a regular biotech company now. Uh, but um, to, to see it all in one place, you know, things that were lacking before, like infrastructure. Um, you know, 10 years ago, there was no extra lab space that a startup company could try to lease. You know, uh, it was a real challenge. One thing that's helped is um, I think all of the uh, academic institutions are, are um, understand the need for commercialization, that if your professors have good ideas, um, that if you really want to move them forward and get them eventually to patients, it costs a small fortune and you really do need a commercial path. You need investors. Um, so uh, a lot of, you know, all of, I would say all the, the major universities are working on, on um, building that um, environment and infrastructure and facilitating tech transfer, uh, you know, just trying to build that community. So that's, that's been uh, really, really interesting to see. Everybody's, you know, gung-ho on helping professors start companies. You know, so that's kind of fun to see. Cool. cool. Tell us about your company. Oh, okay. Uh, my company is Imaginab. Um, and actually, it was, um, I never, it was never on my list of things to do to start a company. I was always a straight academician. You know, my background, my training's in biochemistry and biophysics. Um, and uh, maybe I'll just tell you what the company does. Uh, it develops imaging agents for cancer and in particular immuno-oncology. Uh, and this grew out of uh, my first position, which was at City of Hope, where um, I was part of a broader group. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, there is a very translational environment in Southern California. So at City of Hope, uh, there's always been an interest in bringing new discoveries and new treatments to patients, you know, very much a clinical research-oriented institution, and especially cancer patients. So I was working on engineered antibodies there, and we were working on the whole concept of uh, using antibodies as a way to deliver very targeted therapies at that time, you know, to cancer patients. And we're still working on that. You know, we've come full circle, but but now actually, you know, there's, you know, they, um, things are falling in place and it's really, you know, starting to work now. But so I was at City of Hope and um, in the process of trying to optimize delivery of radioisotopes to patients, there were a lot of technical and biological and physiological challenges. One of those challenges being um, antibodies are designed by nature to stay in your circulation a long time. They have long half-lives. And this is great if you're working on therapies uh, where you just need a cold antibody, you know, an unlabeled native antibody. Uh, it stays in the blood for two to three weeks. So you only have to administer it once every two to three weeks instead of, you know, every day or multiple times a day, especially for something you have to inject. We can't give antibodies in the pill yet. Um, so I was working on... Uh, how to optimize these long-lived antibodies for radioisotope delivery. And that meant shortening the half-life because that long half-life is a problem. You've got circulating radioactivity in the blood. If you're trying to do therapy, uh, that can give you unwanted toxicity to normal tissues because it's in the blood and it's in the patient for a long time. And in particular, you're hitting the bone marrow, which is one of the most sensitive tissues in the body. So I worked on these engineered antibody fragments um, and we initially looked at directly targeting tumors. So we worked on a, a bunch of targets and tumors. We looked at CEA and colon cancer to start out with. 
uh, and made these fragments. And, you know, one of the things that was great about working at City of Hope early on is they have TMP manufacturing facilities. We had a pilot production facility. We could actually make small amounts of this protein and, you know, to clinical standards and do in-house clinical studies. So to me, as a basic scientist, this was a thrill. We had our, you know, radio immunotherapy team. And, uh, you know, I was just the basic scientist, but a very collaborative team. You know, we had um, not just biologists, but we had chemists, immunologists, but then we had all the clinicians. We had radiation oncology, we had surgeons, we had pathologists, uh, all working as a team around this idea, because that's what it takes. You know, you need all of that expertise. And in the end, you need patients who understand, you know, the importance of clinical research. So for me, it was a thrill, you know, as a, as a PhD biochemist to come up with an idea that the team felt was exciting and worthy enough to put in the effort of manufacturing it, of filing the investigational new drug application and bringing it into patients. And we started with imaging studies. You know, it's a good place to start with radioisotopes because you can see, you can scan the patient and see, is that engineered antibody going where you think it should go? Uh, And based on that, you can decide, is it worth moving to a therapeutic? And so we'd done some early studies, you know, many years ago and and published, and people would come up to us and say, you know, has anybody licensed this? Are you taking it forward? Has anybody commercialized it? But, you know, there were imaging agents at the time, and and really there's not that much interest uh, in imaging agents. So we kept going forward, and um, we funded our research uh, through NIH grants. We had a program project grant. And so, as I mentioned, yes, we were able to do pilot studies in 10 or 20 patients. But I came to the realization that that's as far as you would get with NIH funding. You know, to get farther, you've got to find a commercial path. And along the way, I had um, moved from City of Hope to UCLA, across town. And I'd met um, Rob Ryder, who is a professor at UCLA and uh, urologist. And he had discovered um, a target on prostate cancer called prostate stem cell antigen. He had a mouse monoclonal antibody. So we worked together to make this antibody something that we could use in patients. Um, My group humanized it. We turned it into these engineered antibody fragments so we could use it for isotope delivery, et cetera, et cetera. And he had also had some prior experience with with, um, biotech and companies and startups. He was a co-founder of Eurogensis. And he actually went back, while he was a full-time professor, went back and got his MBA at UCLA as a, um, um, got got his MBA, uh, full-time, fully employed MBA, they call it, uh, on the side. And he he actually, (laughs) you know, and this is when the economy was booming, okay? Take yourself back to 2007, Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. and, uh, he, he had an entrepreneurship class. And so he put together Imaginab as a, as his class project for his, his entrepreneurship class, pitched it to the professor. There are a couple of VCs there. He invited me along. Mm -hmm. We thought, oh, we could do a friends and family. Oh, we could raise a little bit of money. Oh, we can do all this. Um, and also into that picture dropped Chris Barenbrook, um, whom I believe you have uh, spoken with. Um, He's a real force. He had also landed at UCLA as our entrepreneur in residence. And in in my department, Molecular Medical Pharmacology at at UCLA, um, which was chaired by Mike Phelps. And uh, Mike was also very entrepreneurship. And he sent Chris around to talk to every faculty member about um, what they were working on and what's the best way to move their projects forward. And it could be grants, it could be foundations, it could be startup companies. 
I distinctly remember sitting in my office with Chris. Uh, first time I had a, you know, any kind of extended conversation with him, telling him about our projects with CEA and PSEA and engineered antibodies and sitting there thinking, why am I talking to this guy? <laughs> but <laughs> because, you know, like I said, it never crossed my mind. You know, it had never crossed my mind to think about industry or startups. You know, it's like nowhere on my list or radar. Mm. But, you know, we got to talking and we got to talking with Rob. And, uh, you know, Chris, of course, liked the idea because he comes from an imaging background. And um, we finally, mm. you know, came to the point where we realized that this actually was a really interesting idea and worthy of pursuing. And so we started to think about, you know, shopping it around, trying to find investors or friends and family, and how would we do this to at least try it? And we finally realized that rather than find someone else, we were actually the best people to move this forward. We had me, the PhD, with the ideas. Mm. Rob was an MD, urologist, so he knew the patients and the need. And he had an MBA, and he'd previously started a company. And then we have Chris with a PhD, um, in engineering, with a background in imaging, also a serial entrepreneur. And we realized we actually were the people who were best qualified to move this forward. We knew the technology. We had, you know, a breadth of expertise. So in the fall of October 2007, we, we formed the company and started, in, and started, you know, the process of trying to build a company. Um, and then, of course, the economy went south. So it was a challenge the first few years. <laughs> I think it took us four years to raise our Series A. <laughs> but anyway, that's how Imagine yeah. I've got started. Um, and I will tell you, you know, our initial focus was tumor targets. And um, as you should when you start a company, yeah. you have to focus on what are the unmet needs. So we picked three cancers where we thought there were mm. unmet uh, needs, mm. prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer. Uh, unmet imaging needs because our mm. initial focus was on on uh, imaging. Um, and to make a long mm. story short, we did develop uh, one of these engineered antibody fragments called a minibody uh, for uh, imaging PSMA, which is a different but well-known targeted prostate cancer now, mm. brought it through phase two. Mm. But at the same time, you know, I think because of my because of the work I did at City of Hope. So the other part of the story at City of Hope is that when I first got there, I had a joint appointment in pathology. And what I worked on was developing molecular diagnostics for leukemia and lymphoma. And at the time, at the time, this is a long mm. time ago, what had just become the standard was doing immunohistochemistry and looking at all those CD markers, CD4, CD8. CD3, mm. you know, all of those, CD25. Mm. Uh, so I'd actually already become mm. very familiar mm. with hematopoiesis, the various CD markers on different lineages, the blood cells. Mm. And so like in the back of my mind, there was always this realization, well, there's all these great markers on immune cells and there's all these corresponding antibodies, you know, and it was just always kind of percolating away in the back of my mind because that's mm. what they were doing. They were stating tissues with antibodies, you know, and we're trying to take antibodies and basically mm. profile tissues in living people. But same concept, take, take advantage of that specificity mm. of the antibodies. So um, that's where um, in my research at UCLA, we broadened the work to start looking at can we image immune cells, not just tumor cells. And this is also something that Imaginab took on in terms of developing a um, 
state clinical agent. So that has now become the the mainstay of what what Imagine Lab is working on, agents to image immune cells in patients so that we can understand what patients' immune systems are doing, and that's particularly in the setting of immuno-oncology. So that was a long story, but... (laughs) Yeah, super interesting. Uh, I think we need to come back to that. Uh, But if we start with Imjunopat, how... If you would explain the immunopet, like for, for dummies, how would you explain it? for dummies just means um, using antibodies to do PET imaging. So um, PET imaging, positron emission tomography, is um, mm-hmm. it's actually like the, the um, well, it was the next generation, but now it's the mainstay of uh, radioactive scanning of patients. Uh, and it takes advantage mm-hmm. of radioactive isotopes uh, but not just isotopes that just give off, you know, a gamma ray, which we can detect with our standard, mm. you know, uh, planar gamma scanners. Uh, positron emission yeah. tomography or PET takes advantage of the fact that there are unstable radioisotopes that we can get that when they decay, they give off a positron. And this positron mm. is an anti-electron. It will scatter in normal tissue until it encounters a short distance. They don't go that far, uh, a millimeter mm. or so until it encounters an ordinary electron in ordinary matter. And I know this sounds like science fiction, but this happens all the time. The positron and the electron mm-hmm. will meet. They will annihilate E equals MC squared. And instead of a positron and electron, you get two photons coming out in opposite directions. Mm-hmm. So we have scanners that can detect that, that uh, decay and mm-hmm. interaction. Uh, and the beauty of positron emission tomography or PET scanning is that it's much more sensitive. It gives you much better spatial resolution because you can tell exactly where that decay took place. And it's also quantitative compared to just conventional single gamma ray, single photon type imaging. Mm-hmm. So it's the mainstay now. The, so that those are the scanners. And the reason it's become a mainstay is because of one tracer, which is a radioactive glucose molecule called FDG, fluorodeoxyglucose. Mm-hmm. And that's been a very powerful combination because there are so many um, processes in which the use of glucose by tissues can be kicked up. So um, Mm. first of all, if you look at a normal person, um, the brain uses a lot of glucose, the heart does. So Mm. that's what you'll see on a normal person's scan is you'll see hot brain, hot heart, Mm. um, maybe the bladder and kidneys. Mm. But um, when, when cancer arises, malignant cells have to crank up their metabolism. And so they undergo a metabolic shift and they take up a lot of glucose. And so now it's a mainstay in oncology imaging uh, because tumors will mm-hmm. light up on a PET scan. And, uh, and also, if the patient's being treated and the treatment is successful, those uh, lesions will disappear. So that's become a mainstay. So what we're doing with ImmunoPET is we're combining these two technologies. We are combining the exquisite specificity of antibodies. So I haven't talked about it that much, mm. but I think, well, we see it now, you know, in, um, you know, in infectious disease, you know, if you get, um, if you get uh, uh, the flu one year and develop antibodies to get it against it, you won't get that mm. same strain again, because you've got antibodies that are very specific for that strain, but not for the new strain. So mm. um, antibodies mm. are, are very, very um, specific. Uh, and uh, we're trying to take advantage of antibodies that are very specific for tumors. Okay, so we put the specificity of mm-hmm. antibodies with the sensitivity and resolution and quantitation offered by PET, and that's what ImmunoPET is. It's using antibodies 
to uh, image uh, whatever targets you're interested in. So the the advantage using antibodies compared to peptides or small molecules is that that it could be more specific to the tumor um, cells. That's part of it because antibodies are highly specific. Uh, the other part of it goes back to biophysics. And it has to go with specificity mm. in that um, in order to get specificity, you have to have some kind of lock and key fit. So um, mm -hmm. there, and it really depends on what your target is. So if your target is an enzyme or a receptor where its normal binding partner is a small molecule. So for example, standard PET that we do, where we look for glucose uptake, we're looking at an enzyme called hexokinase, mm -hmm. uh, and it puts a phosphate group. It chemically modifies glucose. So glucose is its natural substrate. So the glucose has to fit like a key into its active site. So you can make analogs of glucose, and mm -hmm. they will fit very tightly and very specifically into that site. Uh, likewise, mm -hmm. you know, people may be familiar with what's going on in the world of uh, somatostatin receptors, neuroendocrine tumors, we have mm. uh, the SSTR, mm. the somatostatin receptor 2, as a target that's upregulated in neuroendocrine tumors. And we have these new agents uh, based on octreotide or octreotate. There you've got a peptide receptor. So the, the target is a protein that binds to, that recognizes a peptide, and you've got a specific peptide that recognizes it. So you take advantage mm. of that very specific interaction and make an analog of that peptide and radio label it. And it fits like lock and key into that target. And then you can either image it or do very targeted therapy. But mm. I think the challenge becomes, you know, what if your target of interest is a big, boring globular protein <laughs> and you cannot find a small molecule or peptide that will bind to it with high affinity and high specificity. You know, if it's just a boring, flat globular protein, that's where antibodies come in because they have very big and very versatile, very, uh, you know, um, binding surfaces, mm. a thousand square angstroms, a big footprint so that they can be generated and adapted. So they have that very high specificity for these otherwise boring looking protein yeah. surfaces. So that's the beauty. Antibodies can access targets that small molecules and peptides can't because they have a larger binding surface and because the mammalian, mammalian immune system is capable of tremendous diversity mm. and making you know, antibodies that basically can bind to anything. So that, that's uh, where they're complementary. Uh -huh. You know, if you've got a small molecule or peptide that works on your target, go for it. It's a lot simpler to manufacture and produce a tracer. Yeah. But if there is no such small molecular peptide, you know, um, then antibodies become a very, very powerful approach oh. to getting a highly affinity, high specificity recognition agent for, for whatever target you're interested in. Oh, super interesting. And there you have done some work uh, because the antibodies, they will circulate in the body for a long time. And then you have the, done these fragments of the antibody or what do you call it, diabodies or minibodies. Yes. Oh. Yes. So what... Yeah. So what we've done is in order to um, address the issue of the long circulating half-life of antibodies, uh, 
but be able to use them more effectively for radioisotope delivery. Um, my lab has come up with engineered antibody fragments. One's called a minibody. One is called uh, one we didn't invent. It's called a diabody. There's actually groups, uh, Greg Winters in, in the UK and, and Peter Hudson in Australia, who mm. really pioneered these diabodies. But we've used them and we've also further modified them for, for uh, radioisotope delivery. And so what we've done is we've kept the binding sites of the antibody. So we retain that specificity and affinity, but we've gotten rid of a lot of the rest of the molecule. You want to reduce the molecular weight. They're smaller, so they target fast and they clear fast. And uh, for our purposes too, you've got to realize that antibodies have multiple jobs. They have to recognize their target, you know, and that's the the binding sites. But they also have uh, a back end. It's called FC, which is mm-hmm. the the business end of the antibody that. In, in that the FC part of the antibody and it's constant across antibodies interacts with the rest of the host immune system, which is great if you need a therapeutic antibody, but it's not what you want if you're just delivering an isotope for imaging purposes. You know, you actually Mm -hmm. don't want to bind to immune cells. You don't want to trigger immune responses. You just want a neutral inert vehicle. So that's part of what we did when we Mm -hmm. engineered these antibody fragments uh, is to get rid of anything with biological activity. So it's just Mm. a a binding and targeting vehicle. And of course, the other thing we do, and we've always done from the start because of, you know, my interest in clinical utilities that uh, we are always working either with humanized or fully human antibodies so that we can use them in patients. So we do, we Mm. figure if you're going to engineer, and I think the way I looked at it was if you're going to have to engineer and produce a recombinant protein anyway, because you've got to humanize it or use a human antibody, you might as well fix everything mm-hmm. about it that you want fixed. You know, you're going to go through the trouble, you know, why don't you just tailor all the properties that you can so that you have uh, an ideal agent. Mm. And it, well, then you combine this antibodies or fragment of antibodies with isotopes. Uh, what type of isotopes? Is it, of course, it's pet isotopes, but should it be long-lived isotopes or short-lived isotopes? And, uh, you know, the answer to that question, like many questions, is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I think for imaging purposes, shorter is better. Uh, and ideally, you'd like to use mm. good old fluorine 18, which is how we label those glucose molecules. That isotope mm. only has a two-hour half-life. Uh, what, yeah. And it's more than just half-life. It's also, uh, this is getting very technical, but fluorine 18 has a close to 100% positron yield. So to make a long story short, you get the most bang for your buck. Some of these other isotopes, when they decay, they give lower proportions of positrons. So only 20% positron yield. So fluorine 18 is great because high positron yield, short half-life. Short half-life means that you wait a day and the radioactivity is completely gone. So it really reduces any radiation safety issues for the patients or the caregivers. There's no radioactive waste. You just wait a day and it's gone. If you want to image something else, you can come back the next day and do something different. So that's mm. great. But it only works if you've also got a targeting agent that targets and clears from air, normal tissue within those two to four hours. So that's why if you try to put yeah. F-18 on an intact mm. antibody, by the time the antibody went where it was supposed to go and cleared from the blood, it would be days and that radioactivity would mm. be long gone. So that's why this field of immunopet yeah. has been greatly facilitated by uh, increasing availability of radioisotopes. And I'm specifically speaking about isotopes that emit positrons because truly the, on, the, on the scanner side, that's where the technology is, yeah. positron 
imaging. Um, so mm. Copper 64 has a 12.7 hour half-life, so half a day. And then we have a couple others that mm. are being broadly used. Mm. Um, and really popular now is Zirconium 89, which has a three-day half-life. Iodine-124 with yep. a four-day half-life. So those are the biggies. If you're talking about wanting to put a radioisotope on a mm. biological, which has a longer circulating half-life and longer clearance mm. time. So that really has, has um, revolutionized the field. It's mm. opened up all kinds of possibilities for working with intact antibodies. So, you know, who needs fragments if you can do intact antibodies? You know, although that's really mm. not, you know, not my take-home message, but, but mm. you certainly can now start to look at intact mm. antibodies because... Uh, because we can wait them out. We have isotopes with long enough half-lives that we can wait them out. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, then we have immune response imaging. Yes. I think you can, that's another thing. Maybe. Yes. And, yeah. and you actually might call this the other flavor of immunopet because, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, me, let me back up first and just talk about the, and I alluded to it already. Uh, you know, I think one of the most thrilling developments over the past several years has been the coming of age of immune, immune-based therapies for cancer. It's highlighted by the checkpoint inhibitor antibodies that bind to PD-1 or PD-L1, which are the checkpoints that um, in uh, immune responses. Um, but in parallel, and I'll come back to the checkpoint inhibitors, it's not just checkpoint inhibitor antibodies. Uh, there are um, a variety of additional immune-based therapies that really have um, matured uh, over the past few years, including, mm -hmm. for example, bispecific antibodies that will recruit immune cells to the tumor uh, so that they can come in and kill tumor mm -hmm. cells. There are uh, immunocytokines, so people will, will use antibodies to deliver biologically active cytokines that will then recruit and um, you know further... Uh, activate immune responses. There are uh, vaccines, cancer vaccines, uh, not to prevent cancer, but mm. rather to re-immunize a patient against his or her own tumor. And there are the CAR-T therapies and other adoptive cell therapies. So these are taking immune cells from the patient mm. and modifying them so they'll specifically recognize tumors and re-infusing them into the patient to, to kill tumor cells. So on many fronts, uh, there have been tremendous advances in using uh, immunology and the patient's own immune system, you know, with an assist uh, to treat cancers. Mm -hmm. But hand in hand with that, um, it's harder and harder to figure out, um, are those treatments working? Um, which patients to treat? Mm -hmm. um, be, and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's been a challenge because, well, I think the simplest challenge um, has been that our conventional methods of following tumor responses don't necessarily apply when you're using an immunotherapy. In so what way? So it, traditionally, uh, people have just looked for tumor shrinkage and tumor disappearance. And a challenge with immunotherapies, and this was more of a challenge early on, was that in some patients, you know, you'd induce this immune response against their tumors and their tumors would get larger. And their tumors would get hotter using F standard FDG PET scans because immune cells are also cranking up their metabolism using a lot of glucose. So you'd get a flare on the PET scan or you'd get a larger tumor on a CT scan. And you know, using traditional definitions, those patients are progressing. 
But in reality, if you keep treating them, some of them, many of them, and wait long enough, those tumors eventually shrink in size and disappear. So that's a phenomenon called pseudo-progression. It's not real progression. It's pseudo-progression. But using conventional imaging, CT or MRI for the size of the tumor, or FDG PET for metabolic activity, for glucose consumption, can't tell the difference. And this was actually pointed out to be by a colleague at uh, UCLA, Tony Rebus, who was doing a lot of these early clinical trials in uh, using anti-CTLA antibodies in melanoma. That was one of the first checkpoint inhibitor antibodies to be approved. And he said, you know, we have this challenge called pseudoprogression. We can't tell if the patient's getting better or worse. And so we just have to keep treating, even though we don't know. And that's not without cost in terms of um, time, side effects, et cetera. And he said, is there any way we can distinguish the tumor cells from the immune cells? And of course, you know, thinking back to my earlier work with pathology and immunohistochemistry and CD markers, I thought, well, yes, there is. You know, we can look at the CD markers on, on the immune cells. So that's where the idea came from. So I think there's this broad challenge that, um, and I, I, think, I think one of the inherent challenges about immunotherapy, when you're treating a tumor, you know where the tumor is or it's metastatic and you've got markers for it. But when you're treating using an immune therapy, the way I look at it is, you know, the whole patient, the immune system is in the whole patient. It's not just at one spot. Uh, you want to know what's going on in the whole patient. And you especially want to know um, if the disease has spread. And even within single tumors, there can be um, heterogeneity in terms of where the immune cells are. So uh, when you start to st take a step back, you, you realize that you really want to know what's going on in the whole body. You know, and you can't always get all the information you want from a biopsy or blood sample. And so that's where the whole body imaging comes in. And that's where the concept of imaging the immune system comes in. So other people have started to use that term immune pet or immunopet to just refer to imaging the immune system in general. Um, but I'd like to like stake, stake a claim to we were using the term immunopet before then to talk about using antibodies for immunopet. But um, if you use antibodies to image the immune system, then fine. If it's both criteria, both definitions. So that's immunopet. <laughs> cool. So what you're doing, yes, you, um, you label these cells so you can, you can see what type of cells you have in, around a tumor. Or could you, see, could, you, could you see if you have these T cells, yeah, so that's... CD8? That, is that what you can see when you're imaging the So patient? what we know is that there are many types of immune cells. They have many different roles. They actually have to work together, interact with each other to give you an immune response. But we do know that one of the key subsets of immune cells are the CD8 cytotoxic T lymphocytes or the CD8 T cells. And they call them CTLs too sometimes for cytotoxic T lymphocytes because those are the cells that actually kill other cells. You know, uh, they're the primary cells that kill other cells. There are also other yeah, categories yeah. such as NK cells. But in general, the, one of the most important classes of cells in the end for cancer immunotherapy is a CD8 T cell because that's the cell that kills the tumor cell. So what you want to know is, are they getting there? Are they getting to yeah. the tumor? And, you know, we can see that in biopsies. You know, you'll people have done extensive studies with biopsies where they'll look at before treatment, are there any T cells there? Are they in the tumor? Are they around the tumor? Are they nowhere in sight? 
so there's a whole um, diagnostic uh, categorization based on that. But, but I think we need more information than that because we know that tumors are heterogeneous, immune responses are heterogeneous. Um, we can't always biopsy everything. So can we develop instead a non-invasive imaging method to tell us whether or not those T cells are around or in a tumor, whether they're increasing in response to treatment? So that's what we've been trying to work on, um, on a whole body level. Mm. And, you know, you could do it for other cell mm. types as well, but we focused on CDA because cool. at least for now, it's, it's the most obvious mm. target. All of those immunotherapies mm. that I spoke about, most of them converge on CD8 T cells in the end being the key ingredient needs to be there in order to have a good immune response against the tumor. And you say for now, that is the CD8. What do you see around the corner? What uh, is the, the next to look for? Well, I will say that there's a lot going on in ImmunoPet beyond um, what I've just described, imaging the CD8 T cells. So I'll tell you what's happening now in general, and then also what might be happening in terms of in what well what is and, and, and is moving forward also for immune cell imaging. But um, going back to those checkpoint inhibitor antibodies mm. uh, and the fact yes. that we have zirconium-89, uh, we have anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL-1 and anti-CTLA-4, et cetera, all these checkpoint inhibitor antibodies, many of which are FDA approved or approved in Europe for treating uh, patients. And since we have zirconium-89, Many groups have capitalized on the fact that you can just take an approved antibody and radio label it with zirconium-89 and infuse it back into a patient and image them and see where that marker is. So groups in the Netherlands, uh, groups across Europe um, have done this in patients, imaged both PD-1 and PDL one using labeled versions of the um, approved antibodies. So that's an obvious one because we do want to know where these targets are expressed, the targets that these therapeutic antibodies will hit. And we, you know, we want to understand information like how fast is the antibody getting there? How complete is coverage? Um, how much is enough? So that's one area where people are, are using antibody, uh, not to look at the cell type, but rather to look at a checkpoint and it's a, a marker of this, the state of the immune response mm. basically. Uh, so that's one thing people are doing. People are very interested in understanding if those cells are there, mm. are they active or not, you know, because they mm. could be there, but they could be inhibited. They could be, you know, suppressed. Uh, mm. So people are working on activation markers. Um, there's wonderful work coming out of uh, Mass General. Um, Omar Mahmoud and his colleagues are looking at uh, Granzyme B, which is, um, one of the weapons of the cytotoxic T cell that I just told you about. Uh, when they mm. actually kill cells, they release perforin, which pokes holes in the target cells, and they release granzyme B, which is an enzyme, which goes in and it chops up key proteins inside the target cell and initiates this cascade of apoptosis and cell death. So they've developed, because it's an enzyme and the substrate's a peptide, they've developed a peptide analog and turned it into radio labeled it turned into a pet tracer for activated immune cells. So that's a question people want to know. And then in the CAR T cell field, people want to know these CAR T cells that we're putting into patients that are supposed to target their tumors, where do they go? Do they really target their tumors? Or how long do they last? Are they, do they just go to the liver and die? Do they replicate once they get to the tumor? Are they there three months later, six months later? 
So those are the kinds of questions that people are, are actively uh, trying to address through certainly lots of preclinical studies, but really trying to um, to bring these uh, molecular imaging technologies into patients because these these are serious questions that that um, physicians and clinicians and people developing these therapies need to know. So that's what's happening in general in the immune cell imaging field. So people are doing things like either pre-labeling cells and putting them back in patients or putting reporter mm -hmm. genes into those cells so they can try to detect them afterwards, uh, detect those therapeutic cells and all of their descendants, wherever they might be. Uh, and then circling back to your original question, what other immune cells are people directly trying to image? And it gets more complicated beyond CD8, uh, some obvious low-hanging fruit are the CD4 T cells, which is another arm. But the challenge with directly imaging CD4 is CD4 cells sort of enhance the immune response or regulate it. And that's mm. the problem because there are helper subsets mm. and there are regulatory subsets and they all have the same markers. So that marker doesn't help you distinguish between the ones that are promoting an immune response and the ones that are uh, trying to hold back the immune response. And likewise, there are other cells uh, like macrophages Macrophages are the cells that go in and, and uh, they are phagocyte. They eat things. They clean up. You know, they, they process, mm. Uh, mm. process uh, cells that are abnormal and present them to the immune system. But mm. there, there are multiple kinds of macrophages. There are pro-inflammatory ones and there are inhibitory ones. And so trying to figure out, you know, what marker or combination of markers um, to, uh, are most informative to tell you what is the state of the immune response in that tissue? That's a very, very active uh, area of research. But it, it is more complicated because the immune system is very complicated. Uh, and so, it, you know, yes, it's actually very straightforward to make immunopet agents that will detect these markers. But the underlying biology is still very complicated. So, you know, it's, it's not always as straightforward mm -hmm. as to what's going to be uh, useful. But I think... I think um, I'm hoping you're getting the picture that there's, we have many approaches. We have many tools in the toolbox and we have many questions. Cool. And so, you know, it's, it's just an exciting field to be it's in. It's just the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exciting field. Yeah. Just the beginning, mm -hmm. but you have come yeah. a long way. When can this be? This? Yeah, but it takes time. Yes. <laughs> of course. When yes. can this be a clinical uh, available? What do you think? In one or two or uh, five years, for but the, maybe for the CD8 uh, or... For the CD8 imaging, um, it's in phase two studies mm. now, and hopefully in two or three years, it, it will be, uh, you know, brought forward for approval. So hopefully in, you know, two or three years, uh, it might be available. It's certainly available in the context of clinical trials mm. now. And uh, so Imaginab is conducting clinical trials, but also a number of major pharmaceutical companies worldwide um, recognize the utility of having this kind of mm. tool um, as they develop new immunotherapeutics. Mm. One of the things they want to know is um, how are these therapies working? How well are they working? And importantly, um, because we also realize you know, the immune system is complex and uh, we're going to need combination therapies. Mm. What's the best way to combine therapies? What's the right dosing and timing of agents mm. to get the best immune response? So right now, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are looking closely at, at not just this tech, you know, definitely at the CD8 immunopet, but also other technologies 
to try to assess, again, on a whole body level, Hmm. how is that patient's immune system responding to this immunotherapy? So it's available now in the context of clinical trials Hmm. uh, as people try to figure out what are the best ways to use this. Uh, And hopefully, it's also something that can be used more broadly in the future uh, once we get into more standard treatments to, to ask the question, you know, is this treatment working for the patient or what do we need to add or change in, in treatment to, you know, make sure that we get a good immune response. Cool. Uh, when we talk with uh, Chris in episode three, he talked about the future of combining immunotherapy and radiation to uh, talk about oh, delivering yeah. the radiation to the tumor microenvironment. And, and what yeah, do you think? Absolutely. I think, pe- I think the uh, people have not appreciated uh, the many effects of radiation therapy. And here I'm talking, first of all, just about standard external beam radiation therapy, where you have the big machines that irradiate patients. Um, people for a long time didn't appreciate the extent to which immune responses can be part of how patients respond to radiation therapy. So that is a, a focus of uh, research now. Uh, but I think also what's equally exciting is that, you know, I originally talked about using uh, antibodies for targeted radionuclide delivery, targeted radiation therapy. That's like completely uncharted territory, how to combine, say, antibody targeted radiation with immunotherapies, you know, and how immunopet might help you figure out how to use that. So that absolutely is a very, very uh, exciting field. Field again that's seen a resurgence as our understanding of of immune system, the immune system and immune responses has gotten has improved over the years. So um, yeah, I actually have a um, radiation oncology resident joining the lab who's going to be looking at external beam therapy and and imaging CD8 responses to to radiation therapy, just directly imaging to see. How can we optimize the radiation therapy to get the best immune responses? And actually, I'd like to take an an even further step back uh, with regards to immunopet. It's not just cancer Mm. and immuno-oncology. The immune system is involved in so many disease processes. And so, for example, in my lab, we did a study in mice. We did an inflammatory bowel disease study. We did a study in mice Mm. where we induced colitis. And in this case, it was the CD4 T cells that are the key players. But we showed that you could image that CD4 T cell infiltration into the colon and to the regional lymph nodes of that mouse by using an immunopet process. Others have used um, immunopet to look at, uh, you know, and I'm just speaking very broadly now, Inflammatory diseases such mm. as rheumatoid arthritis, um, autoimmune conditions, mm. uh, graft-versus-host disease in patients following stem cell transplants. Um, you could imagine a lot of additional settings. And I'm thinking in particular autoimmunity uh, might be an area where being able to Im- image immune responses in patients might be very helpful to understand you know, the extent of the flare-up, how local, how widespread – and is your therapy working? You know, be able to ask those questions and see more directly, uh, you know, not just based on symptoms or a blood test, but to be able to, to image and, and directly tell whether or not, you know, your patient is having a flare up or whether treatments are working. So it's, it's immunopet can 
have broad applications beyond immuno-oncology, potentially, potentially. So that's very exciting to think about. Yes. And also, as you say, it's a very, uh, indeed, broad uh, area. And now we're only, in citation, talk about uh, imaging, uh, moving to therapy, immunotherapy. What do you think about, I mean, what is your view on that? Yeah, so I am actually very excited about uh, the concept of using antibodies for targeted radiopharmaceutical therapy. Uh, it's actually what I first started working on when I started my career at City of Hope, and then I went to UCLA. But then I came back to City of Hope, and one of the reasons was to focus more on on, on therapies for patients. But now that we see these unquestionable successes in neuroendocrine tumors and what we're starting to see in prostate cancer, people, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. People are going to see the results. Hmm. Um, and see the efficacy of these treatments. And I think people are going to realize that we should be going there. You know, certainly big pharma sees it. Hmm. You know, there's really tremendous new, you know, resurgence of interest in targeted radiopharmaceuticals for therapy. And I think antibodies are going to be a big part. They have been a big part of it and are going to, again, become a big part of it because of the additional specificities you can reach with antibodies that you can't with small molecules or peptides. And yes, they are more work Hmm. to develop, but in the end, you know, if you've got an effective treatment, you know, it's, it's worth the extra cost and expense of developing mm. an antibody. The other thing that antibody de- targeting for radioisotopes will benefit from is that was then and this is now. And now antibodies in general are mainstream therapeutics, not just in oncology, but in mm. inflammatory diseases, in uh, infectious diseases, even in heart disease, you know, there's an mm. antibody. Uh, treatment uh, for for cardiovascular diseases. So the the comfort, you know, antibodies are mainstream, and there's infrastructure. People know how to manufacture them. They know how to get them through hmm. the FDA. That wasn't true 20 years ago or 30 years ago when people first started, you know, working on hmm. let's put an isotope on an antibody. So all that is in place. So it's very easy to step over now and just add a radio label. That's changed. Um, you know, a lot of things are converging. So I think that. You're definitely going to see there's a lot of antibodies that have been around for a while that are now finally moving forward as potential Mm. products as well as uh, new new antibodies. What are are the challenges ahead to make this to a true success? Uh, Clinical success or commercial success? (laughs) (laughs) What is most important to you? Clinical success. Good. I think the same. You know, if yeah. you have clinical yeah. success, all else follows. Excellent. But I think commercially, you kind of also have to look at, you know, just sort of the broader healthcare picture yeah. and what's the unmet need across the healthcare yeah. spectrum. But uh, clinical success. Um, what's needed? Uh, you need a target that is as specific as possible for tumors and not normal tissues because you're always trying to balance efficacy against a tumor with toxicities in normal tissues. Um, and then I think it, you know, there is a lot to be, um, understood about tumors themselves. Some are more radio sensitive, some are more radio resistant, some are more accessible Mm. or not. So that's part of the picture. I think Mm. that's why, uh, hematologic malignancies, leukemias and lymphomas in general have been easier to treat because they're accessible, you know, cells are in the blood or very vascularized tissues like bone marrow. Uh, and those cells actually are programmed to die. They have short lifespans in the in the normal mm. um, 
normal biology. So solid tumors are harder, but um, you know, the right target, the right antibody, uh, the right isotope, and the right patients. It's easy. <laughs> but I think those combinations exist. Mm. Those combinations exist. Mm. You know, we're learning more and more how to do this. So promising. Then we it's time for the Nobel Prize question that we have in all the podcast. Uh, who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in teragnostics? In teragnostics? Mm-hmm. I have a separate opinion as to who should receive a Nobel Prize. I have actually two, two candidates for a Nobel Prize. But, um, and one of them is Mike Phelps for PET scanning, the PET imager. Mm. I think yeah. that that has revolutionized healthcare, cancer care in particular, but healthcare in general. I mean, FTG PET, it's, it's brilliant. And as I mentioned, there are other components of that, not just the scanner. Mm. There's the radio tracer. There's a lot of work by a lot of people that went into that. But mm. I do think that he's been a champion of PET scanning. And if it weren't for, mm. and one thing I didn't comment on earlier, the reason we're able to move quickly to these other radio tracers is because the PET scanners are already there and they're in every Mm. cancer hospital. And the way I look at Mm. it, it's kind of like we have inkjet printers everywhere, but they only print in black Mm. and white. And so now the rest of us in the field are providing the different colors of tracers Mm. so that we can look at Mm. more different things in patients. Mm. So, uh, you know, to the cancer community in general, um, the PET scanner in combination with fluorodeoxyglucose as a tracer has really revolutionized what we can do. We look at biology now, not just anatomy. Mm. But it's also what's enabled what I do mm. because those PET scanners mm. are there. Mm. But then the other person I would talk about um, is at City of Hope, just one of the true pioneers in biotechnology, and that's Art Riggs. Okay. Write his name down. He's brilliant. And he actually, his first contribution 40 years ago was hiring a chemist named Keiichi Itakura who knew how to synthesize oligonucleotides. And as a test project, they synthesized, they put together the gene for human insulin. And this became human insulin which of course has revolutionized life, saved lives of diabetics around the world. But not only that, Hmm. he went one step beyond and said, well, what else can we make in bacteria? Let's make an antibody. So he and his postdoc, Shmulek Kabili, invented recombinant antibodies. So, and so, you know, rituximab, trastuzumab, all those drugs came out of that simple idea, let's clone the genes for antibodies and express them in bacteria. And that's what they did. And that's what I walked into when I went to City of Hope was that he got, you know, he he kind of wanted to move on to other things. He works on methylation and chromatin structure and all sorts of other things. So I basically inherited his antibody engineering program, you know, making generating and producing recombinant antibodies. And so that's how I got into the antibody field. But it really was because he paved the way and showed that you could make recombinant antibodies and you could express them in bacteria or yeast or cells, but then you can, you know, redo antibodies to fit whatever it needs. And so that's exactly what I stepped into. But 
I think because of those contributions, both in insulin and recombinant antibodies, either of those to me is Nobel Prize worthy. So I would vote for both of them. Do you have any say with the committee? <laughs> uh, yeah, we need That's to call great. the committee. Yes, yeah, but I, either of both of them. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, who do Fantastic. you think we should invite to the podcast? Who should you invite to the podcast? You know who's brilliant? But wait, what, what is your overall theme? They're announcing Jason Lewis at Memorial Sloan Kettering. At Memorial Sloan Kettering. He is brilliant. He's, you know, I think his core specialty is the radio labeling of antibodies and other novel agents. But he knows so much about therapy, imaging, preclinical, clinical diseases. He's just knows everything. And it's just brilliant and visionary. He's like the next generation, you know, of uh, people who's just going to revolutionize things. I think he's really, he's really good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's fun talking to you. You make it easy. Because I actually was kind of like, I said, podcast? I don't want to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you have yes, da, da, da. How do I do a podcast? Uh, yeah, no. we, didn't, we didn't know that Fantastic. six months ago either. So, <laughs> But we, we're learning. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's great. Well, I think it's really cool what you're doing. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's fun to talk to you. So I hope you can make something interesting out of it. For sure. Yes. Okay. Thank All right. You so much. Have a great evening. Have Bye. a great day in LA. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Right. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Anna Wu. What do you say, Nat? Oh, so, so cool. I mean, uh, no Nobel Prize winner. What are we talking about? Yeah. And this is so interesting um, topic, immunology. It's a little bit hard to understand sometimes, but immunology, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And to, to combine this with, with pet imaging and maybe with therapy uh, in the future, yeah, uh, super interesting. You have to and listen she- to it several times, I think. That is a, a, t- a tip to do that. <laughs> Take a home message. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, something more for today? I don't think so. No? It's good. Then we close the podcast for today by saying that you can reach out to us by sending us an email, podcast at samnordic.se, podcast at samnordic.se, or visit our LinkedIn site. Great. Great. Thank you for today, Annette. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. Bye.